This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1946, and let's hop a plane to Boone City. The movie? The best years of our lives. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson and I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films we watch today? And you know, Amy, before we get into any of this stuff, let me remind everybody out there, if you're in LA this month on the 21st of the month, that's a Thursday, we are doing an Unspooled Live. It's called Lapocalypse. It's all movies uh, where LA is basically a post-up. Destroyed. And that's partly to celebrate uh, the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner. Oh, it's Blade Runner month. If you watch Blade Runner, it opens by saying it is November 2019, and it is basically... Well, you know, we're living in the hellscape. We didn't want to do Blade Runner itself because we got to save that for a proper episode. So we're going to talk about Repo Man. So uh, come out and check us out at the Alamo Draft House. That is November 21st. We hope to see you there. Now, this week we're talking about a film that is very hard to find, The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, we put a link up on our Twitter page. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But I want to get into some of the reaction to last week's film, which was Forrest Gump. We are not alone. Um <laughs> In our in our kind of reaction to Forrest Gump, I think there was a lot of, oh my God, you guys feel the same way that we feel about Forrest Gump. It's like a little known secret that no one wanted to admit. <laughs> well, there were some Forrest Gump defenders. I know sure. that this was this was the episode that the Facebook group was most worried about because apparently every time they've tried to talk about Forrest Gump on the Facebook group in the past, it has instantly devolved into the next Vietnam War. It has been very, very, very bad. Um, but that's a real said, messy situation. I thought all the conversations happening over there were fascinating, and I pulled like eight bazillion things I want to talk about. One of them on the positive side. Yes. 
Frank Paul pointed out that Fred Rogers, our beloved Mr. Rogers, is rumored to have seen this movie over a dozen times in the theater, and that, that it speaks to the fact that kindness is the point, and I bet it speaks to the fact that Tom Hanks was like, okay, man, I will play you. You know, when I read that, it made so much sense to me. And again, if I can reiterate one thing, and I think this is something that I found with a lot of people online, it it isn't that this is a bad movie. It's a feel-good, it's a lovely movie. I just don't think it belongs on this list for all the reasons that we mentioned. And I think- Wow, you sound so much more modulated than you did last week. <laughs> two things can be true. Two things can definitely be true. And performances can be great. But I do feel um, like that is an important distinction. And we're getting into that a little bit as we talk about all these types of films. And and it's hard to parse sometimes. Like- you know, hard to parse. It's hard to parse. Uh, but, you know, a movie that makes you feel good doesn't have to be the best movie of all time either. I mean, Ghostbusters makes me feel great, but I wouldn't put it on the list. Yeah. I just wouldn't. Ghostbusters makes you feel good. It does. Well, busting definitely makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, here's another one that I thought was interesting, which was the non-American perspective on Forrest Gump. That was from Thomas Blick, and he said, you know, I am not an American, so I think that my view of the film is colored by that. I always thought that the film was a really dark commentary on the fallacy of the American dream, that in reality, it doesn't matter how hard you work. It's really all about luck and being in the right place at the right time. And that also, to your point about how weird it is that nobody recognizes Forrest Gump when he's done a gazillion things, Thomas Blick was like, I also kind of thought that maybe that's the point, too, that despite all of Gump's massive successes, nobody knows who he is, which says something about America's ability to constantly reinvent itself. Hmm, that's really interesting. You know, I think this idea that, you know, Forrest Gump is this kind of unchangeable rock and that kind of represents what America is, no matter what, we remain the same. I don't think that that's a great point of view for what we are as a culture. And not to get into politics, but this idea of like, make America great again is something that I think has been a rallying cry that people have gotten behind. And I am much more of the belief like, we are great, but we are evolving and changing, and we're not going to go back to the way it was. We should be going forward. And and that's, I think, maybe if you broke it down to a certain point, too, it's like, that's a Forrest Gump really doesn't do. I mean, he grows a little bit, but not, you know, you want him to evolve. And I think that that, to me, in thinking about it in this last week, I was thinking about that. I was like, I don't want to just be a rock. I want to be affected by the things around me. I And, and I think that's important. Um, yeah, I think like some of my favorite comments this week were really pointing out the refractory nature of that movie, which really seems fascinating. Maybe one of the most like dimensional movies that we've had on this list of like yeah. everybody sees something different. You know, Adam Mortimer pointed out, you know, people definitely just project their feelings on it. Some people watch Forrest Gump and they're like, yes, America is great and Jenny and those liberals are getting what they deserve, which is dying early. Right. And then other people like me see it as the opposite, as a sorry parody of the American dream. And then other people don't see any politics at all. They just see it as a sweet and comforting story about a harmless idiot and nostalgia for things they don't remember. And by the way, I that's how I saw it the first time. Someone wrote a great comment <laughs> which is a little bit of a slam, but I'll read it anyway. And this is a rich uh, challenge. He goes, Forrest Gump is the cinema equivalent of we didn't start the fire. And there is something <laughs> very true to that. I mean, I, by the way, I am a Billy Joel fan and I like that song. Um, but, you know, that's, is it the best Billy Joel song? I don't think it's the best, but, uh, but, you know, it's definitely <laughs> fun, catchy and poppy. And, you know, it, it walks you through the whole world. 
Anyway, speaking about reinventing history like we just did, or maybe we're maybe we're reinventing the future, the next list. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Braun pointed out, do you think that Tarantino started inserting his characters into history, like Inglourious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Django Unchained, because Forrest Gump beat Pulp Fiction at the Oscars, that maybe this idea of doing a, an American epic kind of gnawed at him, as Jeff Braun says, subconsciously for 15 years, and he doesn't even realize that that is why he does it, which I thought was a wow. promising point. And then- Ian Stewart wrote, no, no, I do not think this, which is fair. But I, I, I'm, I'm open to this. I'm open to this. Although, I don't know. I mean, do you think Tarantino does a lot subconsciously? I feel like he kind of like puts his whole conscious out there. You know, I think Quentin Tarantino is playing in a sandbox of his own creation. I mean, you, you met him. You've talked to him. I've never met him. But I, I like the idea that he doesn't play by the rules of society. Like, you know, I would love to see the Quentin Tarantino version of certain things. That's why I think Quentin Tarantino is such an exciting filmmaker because he, like Guillermo del Toro, um, even Christopher Nolan, they were going to take a film and reinvent it. Like Quentin Tarantino doing James Bond is going to be different than anybody else doing James Bond. Uh, Like I I like those ideas of like, no, 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 I don't deal. Like that's my inspiration. And then I create out of that. It's sort of like you just give them a ball of clay and they go off and make their own thing. That's fair. And I mean, I do think kind of related to that, you know, Lewis jumped into that conversation and he put the context of that pivotal Oscar win into sort of a larger thing that we do actually do at the Oscars, which is that, you know, since the Oscar voters, as he put it, had the quote unquote audacity to award Forrest Gump over Best Picture, that they have, that there has now formed a Pulp Fiction for Life crew that he says, he says has successfully spread their anti-Gump propaganda to the masses, causing the cynical reevaluation, which is a thing that I absolutely believe happened happened with Saving Private Ryan and um, Shakespeare in Love. You're totally right. I love Shakespeare in Love. I think that film holds up better than we found Saving Private Ryan did, honestly. Yeah. And, and I feel a little protective of of that movie in that way, so I get it. And and um, Lewis also likened this to the Shawshank Redemption nasties, which <laughs> we're, we're part of, sorry. I mean, we are part of that. And, you know, I want to just take a moment also uh, to talk a little bit about some of the things that we said on the show. I got an email from a member of the Lieutenant Dan Band, and he said, you know, honestly, it seemed to me like you were both poking a little fun at the name of the band, and Ben wanted me to know a little bit about the reasoning behind it, and basically, um, first of all, I want to say, I was not poking uh, fun at the name. I think we were just on a tear on Forrest Gump stuff. Uh, I'm actually really blown away by what Gary Sinise does. You know, Lieutenant Dan Band um, was something that came out of USO tours, which is something that is very important to me. I I love the USO. And when when he was over there, people kept on calling him Lieutenant Dan. And he didn't really even have a band at that point. But it, he thought, oh, you know what I should do? I should just put something together with some friends. And, and you know, instead of just going over and shaking hands on the USO tour, I'm going to do a show. I'm going to actually do a show. So that's how Lieutenant Dan band came. I think it was the idea that, oh, people know this character. I'm going to do a band. We're going to put on a show. And, you know, this character, according to Ben, has resonated so deeply with active service members and veterans um, that it was, you know, it's not about Gary Sinise. It's not an ego thing. And, you know, the foundation that Gary Sinise does, it's pretty remarkable. I was just having fun with Amy. And honestly, I was laughing that he was doing a premiere party for CSI New York and saying, are there any CSI fans out there? That's what I was laughing at ultimately, because that to me was funny. And it still is funny to me. Like, hey, are there any CSI? <laughs> I've just never heard anyone yell that in a public space. Uh, so it has nothing to do with the band. It's just it's just that. You're a Lieutenant Dan Band fan. I, I, look, I am a Gary Sinise fan. 
And I uh, and but and I do think the work that they do is great. So my laughter was simply the CSI of it all, uh, which I'm not making fun of in the show. Just asking that to a crowded room made me laugh. And I want to say one more more thing really fast, which is that Ian Stewart uh, gave a shout out to a film that I have been meaning to catch all year. He said that, you know, since he was a teenager, I volunteered and worked with people with mental disabilities, Down syndrome, autism, you know, fragile X, fetal alcoholism, brain damage, et cetera. So the portrayal of disabilities in films, especially mental disabilities, is really important. And that a film that he feels like does do it really well this year that I really want to see is Peanut Butter Falcon. And that he mm-hmm. says that there's a character there, Zachary, who's played as a person, you know, who's difficult, who can be selfish and funny, that he is real and flawed beyond his disability. And um, thank you again for insisting that be on my radar. I've heard that movie is so good from so many people. And so Peanut Butter Falcon. And that also will tie into our guest today on the show, where we're going to talk a little bit more about representation of disability in film and television with uh, a very special guest. And that kind of brings us to this film, which I didn't know much about, The Best Years of Our Lives. And you guys didn't know that much about it either. So uh, here's a couple phone calls of what people thought this movie was about. I think it's about a group of friends who worked on a yearbook and they come together at their high school 10 or 15, 20 year reunion and they look back through the yearbook and we go through the best years of their lives. The Best Years of Our Lives is an ironically named documentary about Jar Jar Binks actor Ahmed Best and his struggle with depression after the Star Wars fan backlash to his character. The hook for a hand, does that mean it's tied into that whole urban legend of the the lover's lover's lane? They drive their car away, and when they get home, there's a hook hanging from their car door handle or something? I think the best years of our lives are about some people and some years that they had. And I think those years could possibly have been the best years of their lives. Amy. I want to see that Jar Jar Binks movie so bad. I'm sure it's going to be on Disney Plus like in three days. I love Disney Plus. I'm already into it. Love it all. Can watch whatever I want. Three Caballeros, I'm all about it. Um, Okay, okay. I was going to say something snarky, but that is one of my favorite cartoons. All right, there you go. I'm still not going to subscribe. Fuck them. What? Come on now. (laughs) What about to see my great documentary that's going to be on there? I'm just going to break into your house. All right. Um, Amy, let's get into our feature presentation. Hey there, sailor. The year is 1946, and the United Nations takes place at an outdated League of Nations. The bikini debuts have been taking its name from a recent atomic testing. Sorry. Hey there, sailor. It's 1946. The bikini debuts having taken its name from a recent atomic testing at Bikini Atoll. Didn't know that. Tupperware, the microwave oven, suntan lotions, and electric dryers are introduced to American consumers. The first Cannes Film Festival takes place in can doy steven spielberg is born as well as ted bundy and donald trump popular films are it's a wonderful life the postman always rings twice and today's film the best years of our lives it ranks number 37 on both the 2007 and the 1997 edition of the afi top 100 list let's hear a little clip from the best years of our lives this is when i know i'm helpless my hands are down there on the bed can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I'm as dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. 
Well, now you know, Wilma. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I know what to say, Homer. I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. Never. The Best Years of Our Lives. It is directed by our buddy, William Wyler, who did the film Ben-Hur. Yes. We are back with our In the Loving Embrace of William Wyler. Uh, He is joined by writer Robert E. Sherwood, who wrote the film Rebecca, working from a novel by McKinley Kentor, based on an article about soldiers returning home from World War II. Uh, The film stars Myrna Loy, who people know from the Thin Man series, one of the great screen actresses, one of the great beauties of all time. Love Thin Man. Uh, you've also got Teresa Wright and Virginia Mayo. And you have, as the main leads, as your three soldiers returning home, three different men at three different stages of their life, three different platoons they were coming from, three different very experiences. You have Frederick March, Dana Andrews, and Harold Russell making his big, big, big screen debut as an actor, given that he was a non-actor. He was a real-life soldier who lost both of his hands and had hooks was in a training video about how easy it was for him to learn how to use his new hooks in the, in the military hospital and was therefore discovered by William Wyler and put in this movie as a character a lot like himself. This movie is interesting in the sense that it's on this list and out of all the films that we have done, it's very hard to find. Um, we had to actually put out a link for you to watch this film online because it's not available on any streaming site. And I know it played maybe on TMC a couple of months ago, but it's not an easily accessible film at all. Yeah, yeah. One of our beloved listeners, Alan Sepinwall, the fantastic TV oh, critic, was wise enough stuff. to tape it from TCM a couple months ago. And I almost had a heart attack when it, when it came time to do this episode. And I was like, oh, my God, you can't find it anywhere. We ultimately found it on archive.org, which has sometimes things that you cannot find anywhere. I bless them. I bless them very deeply. So, wow. That was, I mean, we've been talking a lot lately, I feel like, in film, Twitter, and in the world about what do we do about the coming film apocalypse? Yeah. You know, if everything gets uploaded to the cloud, what happens when the cloud doesn't have it? What happens when you can't get it from the cloud because of rights or whatever? But it's shocking that a film, and not to kind of jump ahead, but a film that wins Best Motion Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Writing, Best Supporting Actor, Best Film Editing. Uh, it was best, one of the biggest hits of the year. Yeah, biggest, uh, it made as much money uh, or next to as much money as Gone with the Wind. I mean, this is a, a classic it just is amazing that a film of this caliber disappears. Yeah. You know, that and, that was blowing my mind. And it's fascinating because I think so much of the value in the AFI list is it says, here are a lot of our treasures. We have to save them, mm-hmm. which is why I like that we kind of push and pull about what's on there because I worry that if something doesn't make it on this list, it could be forgotten in cultural yes. memory. You know, that there's a lot of things that we just don't remember because they weren't on something like this. And here's something that made it on this list and is still in danger of getting made lost. Made it on it twice at the same position, a pretty high position. And I will say, having never heard of this movie, which is actually surprising for me, um, you know, looking at this list when we first started off on this project, I could tell you that I've heard of 99 films on this list. I did not know of this film. When I saw that, I was like, wait, what is that? And when I saw a still, I was like, huh, doesn't ring a bell. And what I was expecting in starting to watch it, first of all, you know, I do one of those gut punch moments when I see the movie's two hours and 49 minutes. I'm like, oh my God. You sent a very, very sad email. I did. I was like, oh, kill me now because it was just late on a Sunday and I had a busy weekend. Um, my mom moved out here. She uh, moved into a one-bedroom apartment and shipped 110 boxes to that 
one bedroom apartment with two closets. So are, a, are they the walls? Uh, <laughs> she had she brought thirty six wine glasses. 36 wine glasses. And I said, Mom, why do you have so many wine glasses? And she's like, I like wine. I'm like, you can wash a glass. But anyway. I already at Paul's mom's house. I know. So I came home from that to see that it was two hours and 49 minutes. And and I was thinking like, oh, you know, it's not available. This movie probably is outdated. It's going to be one of those movies that is on this list because it was kind of grandfathered in. And I have to say – Never judge a book by its uh, cover or title because this movie not only is relevant, but I loved this film and am shocked that it's not spoken about more, especially in a list that caters to war movies. This movie, I I can't wait to talk to you about it, but um, spoiler alert, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. I think it's really, really uh, incredibly engaging and I don't know, shockingly realistic for the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, William Wyler, he was known as 40 Take Wyler because he was one of those directors who liked to do a bazillion takes, but he did a bazillion takes in the service of trying to make something that felt like a documentary. You know, he had his characters go and pick out their own clothes, you know, figure out their own wardrobes, really get into the heads of what these people were like, what they were doing. He made the sets feel like actual home sets. He didn't, you know, usually you've been on a lot of sets. Yeah. They build out the walls to be a little big, right. to be a little artificial, but he had them be real homes so that they felt as small, as claustrophobic, so that people really were natural. And it has this documentary feel that I think is really important. And one of the ways that I think he does that in in the best way is by casting a non-actor as one of the leads, uh, the character of Homer. Uh, we talked about Harold Russell uh, a little bit earlier. He is a man who was, you know, uh, hurt in the war. He was disabled in the war. and He was holding a box of TNT that exploded in his hands. And I hope I'm using all these terms, right? So forgive me if I'm not, but he has these hooks for hands. And, you know, one of the most fascinating things is is watching him be so facile with these hooks, you know, and and sort of at ease with them. And there's something about a person who literally has that and deals with that, playing that role versus an actor pretending to have that, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I actually want to play a little bit of his film that got him discovered, the documentary film that happened. You know, I'm sure people listening to this know a lot about Five Came Back, the book by Mark Harris that then became the Netflix series that is all about how William Wyler, John Ford, this generation of directors, went to war, became filmmakers, like made films about what was happening. And so one of the films that got made during the time was this film kind of trying to give uplift to soldiers who had been injured. A lot of people were really injured in this war. And it, you know, one of the things that I think makes World War II and World War I really interesting is that these are sort of the first wars that we really had as humanity, where if you got dr- drastically injured, you still could survive. Mm. We had advances in like battlefield technology. So you could lose an arm or a leg and you wouldn't bleed out necessarily. You could still go on and live And so there was a lot of talk about what do we do with these soldiers who have been injured? How do we make them feel like they can go on, that life hasn't ended? And yes, one of them did star Harold Russell. And here's a clip of just the documentary. When I came back to the ward, I couldn't help flashing my new hooks. I sure felt cocky. I puffed casually on a cigarette and swaggered as though I'd won the Medal of Honor with Oak Leaf Cluster. I wanted to drink a toast to the world with my own new hands, even if it had to be milk. Boy, was I riding high. No straw for me. 
And then he drops a glass of milk right. and he realizes his path to recovery is going to be a little bit harder. But he explains how the claws work in this documentary. Like you move one shoulder and it opens the claw on the other hand. He's doing oh, all wow. this back muscle work that makes them open and close to all sorts of different dimensions. I was wondering about that and watching it. You know, they actually make him a little bit um, less able in the film. Did you know that? Like at one point when he is having a very dramatic scene towards the end of the film with Wilma, his high school sweetheart, who he's embarrassed to commit to because he feels like he's weighing her down. You know, he he basically says to her, like, um, you know, once I remove my hooks, I'm as helpless as a baby. Um, that was just added to make him more sympathetic. I mean, he could fully put on his hooks without help, uh, which is, you know, it it's kind of amazing. The whole film, it really shows him in such a positive light. He's dealing with emotional things, but it almost feels like there's a um, a magic trick element to him. Every time he's on screen, they they have him lighting cigarettes. They have him opening things. They have him shooting guns. When he puts the wedding ring on Wilma's finger, yeah. everybody in the movie just stops. And they're like, can he put a wedding ring on a yeah. girl's finger? And then they It's the skip. best infomercial for hook hands that you could possibly get. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, to what you're saying, they they make his confidence be part of his arc. This is a character who never comes into the film asking for pity. And by the end, he has to admit that he's vulnerable. That is part of his character's journey. He wants to prove that he's so tough. I mean, we first meet him on this airplane with two other soldiers. They're all trying to return home to this this fictional town of Boone City, which is patterned loosely after Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. He's on this plane with these two guys. They notice his hooks, and he just faces this right on. He tells them his story. Well, and you've got nothing to worry about. Thanks. Because you saw a lot of action. No, I didn't see much of the war. I mean, the way you fellas did. You trying to kid the army? No, I was stationed in the repair shop below decks. Oh, I was in plenty of battles. But I never saw a Jap or heard a shell coming at me. When we were sunk, all I know is there was a lot of fire and explosions. And, and I was on the topsides and, and overboard. And I was burned. When I came to, I was on a cruiser. My hands were off. After that, I had it easy. Easy? That's what I said. They took care of me fine. They trained me to use these things. I can dial telephones. I can drive a car. I can even put nickels in a jukebox. <laughs> I'm all right. And, you know, I think back to this bigger point we're having, they kind of address things in a really interesting way. Instead of making him a war hero, you know, they make him just a victim of being in a war. And I love, I just love it. It's a lot of simplicity because I think a lot of the films that we watch, it revolves around heroes and doing something, you know, they were they were in such intense battle. But it just, I think, humanizes everything. It makes the film feel real. It's like, oh, this is what's really going on, you know? Yeah, it's not about the grand scale. And, and I think normalization is such an interesting part of it, especially with this character. You, I mean... I can't help it when I start watching this film. I was like, look what he's doing. He's lighting a match. Oh, absolutely. And you're entranced by them to the point that Frederick March, his main co-star here, was like, when I have a big scene, I need to put those hooks down. I do not want the audience watching you drink a beer when I'm trying to deliver some emotion. Well, I mean, it's true. You, I guess maybe because we haven't seen it, there is a consistent you know, level of trickery going on. And the movie has no real special effects or, you know, special effects to talk of. They do some great camera work. And this is, again, uh, by our uh, Greg Toland, who we've now visited. This is our third time, I think, with Greg Toland. You know, just some really interesting shots. But 
it is every time it's on screen. It's like, oh, what do we got? What do, you know? It, I want to see. Um, and they do a great job, I think, of of playing to that too. They they are making that part of the story. Yeah, and I feel like Harold Russell has such natural radiance. Mm. Like, I don't know if I would say he's a complicated, deep actor, but I would say he's a immensely appealing actor. Absolutely. I mean, when do you have to be complicated? You know, a lot, a lot of the times, I think some of our biggest movie stars are just a version of themselves, a charming person that you want to just watch. And that's how I felt with him. And the fact that, you know, Samuel Golden, who was running the studio, was like, he's got to go to acting lessons. And William Wyler was like, no, 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 no. Keep him the way he is. And before watching this film, I didn't know that he never acted before. There's nothing about him that feels either too performative or or nervous or uncomfortable at all. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that you know, he would wind up making history as the first person to win two Academy Awards for the same performance. And make history for being the only person to actually sell one of those Academy Awards. He had a spare. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> the reason that he actually wound up winning two Academy Awards is he was up for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. People, I think, quietly thought, he's not going to get it. It's sort of like a pity nomination. Right. Like, oh, we're just recognizing that he existed. So they decided to go around and make a second Academy Award just for him, an honorary award for, quote, bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance. So they gave him the Oscar for that. He went up. He gave a lovely speech. He sat back down. And then they gave him the award for Best Supporting Actor. He was totally surprised. And he was like, two is way too many, is all he really said. He went up there and he's like, two is way too many. And he went back down. (laughs) But it's it's really interesting to me. I was doing a lot of research about him afterwards that – he wins these two Academy Awards. He writes two novels, but he only acts four more times. And the difference is from 1946, Best Years of Our Lives, to the next role in 1980 in Inside Moves, and then 1981, Trapper John M.D. Then he takes another break until 1989, which is China Beach, and then takes another big break and then does Dogtown. Um, yeah, he played Dana Delaney's uncle in China Beach. But I did find it interesting to wait that long. You know, he – or not wait that long, but just to kind of not chase it down. I think Right, because he took an option that the characters in this film don't do, which is he used the GI Bill to go to school. Well, and that was because William Wyler said, hey, look, this is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you. So go back to school. And he did. And he got a business degree. And he used that business degree to help sell his Oscar. Under mysterious circumstances, by the way. Uh, Did you know this whole story? A little bit. Yeah, tell me. All right. So he – first of all, he's the reason why there is now a clause for all Oscar winners that you cannot sell an Oscar. Uh, And if you do want to sell your Oscar, you have to offer it to the Academy first for a dollar. And they have a 30-day window in which to – to say yes or no. Um, But he sold his Oscar because he said his wife was dying and she needed uh, medical bills paid for. And then I guess there's another side and we don't know whose side is right, but uh, he just sold it to go on a cruise with his wife and then she was not sick at all. And there's something really great about (laughs) the fact that he (laughs) sold it to go on a cruise. I don't know why. I just thought, like, there was something about it that I was like, oh, that's weird. He sold his Oscar. But then to go on a cruise is like, that's sweet. It's like, he's like, fuck it. I need it. He had two. He was probably, what, in his 60s or 70s? Yeah, I think it was in the mid-80s he was selling them. Right. I mean, come on. (laughs) I'm I'm kind of on his side here, honestly. And I would say that if the Academy cares that much about it, maybe they should... uh, Take a page from, remember our guest, Kevin uh, Goth? Yeah. Who said that his great-great-aunt, Hattie McDaniel, her Oscar was lost and stolen. Then they should care as much about replacing that one. Wow. 
Uh, yes, I forgot all about that. Well, there we go. Well, there it goes. This movie has an interesting trajectory to get the screen because it was based on a Time Magazine article that then was turned into a novel. And the Time Magazine article sounds amazing. It was in 1944. It was a story about a group of Marines taking a train back home to New York from San Diego, and they grow more and more quiet and nervous as they get closer to home. And and that is one of the things that I think really pulled me in the beginning of this film. You meet these guys, you see them in their element. They're excited to go home, and then they're home. And you see how they react, and it reminded me very much of a film that we talked about here, The Deer Hunter. Oh, yeah. Like how, that the, scene of, of De Niro just going past his yeah. welcome home party and getting himself a motel room because he couldn't handle it. And and I'll, I'll say it before and I'll say it again, uh, Deer Hunter does not belong on this list, and this movie certainly does. I mean, this movie does, I think, a lot of what Deer Hunter is trying to do, um, you know, with the acclamation to home. I mean, but I couldn't help see similarities in these these guys. I mean, I guess that movie's a little bit different because it's before war and then how they are in war and then a little bit after. But it it uh, it definitely reminded me. There yeah. are similarities. There. And it does also remind me of Forrest Gump, you know, the Lieutenant Dan dealing with his legs, mm. which I think also really dovetails a lot with, you know, what we get to see of Harold Russell's arc in dealing with the loss of his hands. I mean, to me, it's so fascinating to watch a character that has a lot of bravado mm-hmm. and then let it slip a little bit. Like, What's really moving about his character is you get this sense of of how much it hurts him that it hurts his family. You oh, know, that he, scene around the piano where he's talking about his dad being embarrassed that he has hands. Yeah, we should listen to that. It's beautiful because I think they're looking at loss in a really complicated way. I would say even more complicated than the way Lieutenant Dan sees it as something he was cheated out of. Mm. Not to diminish Lieutenant Dan's feelings at all, but I, I, this view really fascinates me because it's a point of view that you don't hear that often. What made you leave the house and get them all worried? Oh, they... They they got me nervous. How? Butch, it's nothing. I don't want to talk about it. How'd they get you nervous? Well, they... they well, they keep staring at these hooks, or, or else they, they keep staring away from them. You mean whatever they do is wrong? Why don't they understand that all I want is to be treated like everybody else? Take Pop, for instance. He was cleaning his pipe like I've seen him do a million times. And all of a sudden, he got conscious that he had hands, and I didn't, and he, he stopped cleaning his pipe, and he tried to hide his hands like he was guilty or something. Give him time, kid. They'll catch on. You know, your folks will get used to you, and you'll get used to them. And everything will settle down nicely. Unless we have another war. Then none of us have to worry because we'll all be blown to bits the first day. I had to let that clip play a little yeah. long because the final thing the piano player says just really cracks me up. And I basically say it every day to myself. So. But it's somewhat comforting to know that these experiences are what we all have. And I, I think what this character is showing is one part of the war. You know, what the piano player is showing is one part of the war. You know, he, the piano player, I don't think is a vet, but he's talking about, you know, the, the feeling that we all feel. And, and you see it later in the film. Were we there for the right reason? And I think uh, what's going on with Homer is he's telling you, no, treat me like a normal person, shake my hand. And there's a, a guilt that this character carries that is because of other people's guilt or, you know, sadness at him. And it, that's an uncomfortable weight. 
you know, the idea of PTSD before it becomes, you know, in popular culture is... Yeah, this is 30 years before we even have the phrase. Yeah, we don't really examine it that much. I mean, I think we hear about guys coming back from Vietnam and being affected, um, but it's not called PTSD, or now it may be called that retroactively. But seeing this vision of, you know, World War II soldiers after the war, it's kind of... It humanized. It, it takes away the sheen of the way that we. I think I've always seen World War II portrayed in films. Like we're Americans and we're the best and we did it all and da 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 da. You know, it's like right. this. We won. Congratulations. Yes. Everything was clear, black and white. The fights were easy. No one died, and it was you know. And, and we we see it now, of course, a lot more with Saving Private Ryan and 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 other films that can go backwards. You know, even Dunkirk. But in this time, this is like like Grapes of Wrath, fresh off the heels of the war. This comes out in '46. Like this is. We're in the mo- we're in the moment here. Yeah, exactly. And I mean that that idea about like things being as simple as heroes and villains, you know, the idea that I think I thought of a, of a lot of World War II films. You hear that this film is contradicting that even in that piano player conversation mm-hmm. that Homer's problems at home aren't because his family's awful, it's because it's complicated and there's like right. a lot of complicated love there. There are no villains in this movie. No. Which I really respect. And that's I mean that is a thing that evolved in the film because when this first Time Magazine article came out and Francis Golden, who's Samuel Golden, the producer, his wife, she found the article. She was like, you have to do this movie. You have to turn this into a movie. They gave it to McKinley Cantor, who turned it into a novel, this kind of artsy novel. Mm-hmm. The, the Cantor novel wound up not being used that closely because Cantor added villains. And oh, really? most of the villains he added were women. The story that he came up with is basically <laughs> all these guys come home and their bitches be awful. And therefore, nothing works. Okay, interesting. So they were like, okay, 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 what if we don't do that part? So they kept the idea of the characters, especially of the three men. Uh, the the uh, Harold, his his character was a little bit different. The Homer in the film was more, they, they were calling him, quote unquote, at the time, a spastic. Okay. I'm not exactly sure what that would have meant. Well, Homer, I think they wanted him to be, I mean, or at least he was written to be suffering from like a war trauma. Like, you know, so I... Who knows the idea of what people thought it was versus, you know, I, I think he probably was under severe psychological strain. Yeah. And I, and I think he was also supposed to be the alcoholic. And then they shifted the alcoholism problem over to Al the banker. Mm. Do you think Al's an alcoholic or do you think that the pressure of dealing in society makes him drink? Because I feel like when they really have that they have him drink twice, or at least in my mind, that seemed like big moments. You know, uh, one is at the the speech, uh, the other is the night when they kind of party. And then, yes, he's having like, uh, you know, a drink during the day when he, he meets up with uh, Frank. But they kind of play it a little bit uh, closer to the vest. It's like his alcoholism isn't problem it it's it, you feel like he's gonna have trouble public speaking because he doesn't believe in what he's saying so he's drinking to kind of numb him but i mean do you think he's an alcoholic i think he's on the edge of it becoming a problem okay you know you don't get the sense that he was an alcoholic during the war or that he was an alcoholic before the war right but that alcohol is what he uses to try to cope with the the, the surrealness of coming back to your family and they're radically different well that you know, whole idea of like let's go out let's i want to go out i want to party i want to yeah, yeah it's like and it's interesting. I mean, like, we, are, you know, here he is, this kind of quote-unquote patriarchal figure we can kind of assume before mm-hmm. the war. Like, he works at a bank. He's wealthy. He has a lovely housewife. He has two young kids. He goes away. He comes back. The kids are grown-ups. I know. They don't really need that much from him. His son somehow disappears, like, after one act. Yeah, really. Like, okay, Peggy's bye. more interesting. 
yeah. His wife has learned that she can handle the house pretty mm-hmm. fine without They don't even him. have a housekeeper anymore. Yeah, they're all fairly independent. And he doesn't respect his job that much anymore. And so who is he when everything that defined him before the war is gone? And I think alcohol is the main thing that he uses to soothe. And you see in Myrna Loy's face the way she looks at him that she is very nervous this is about to go yes. wrong. There's a great moment. We should kind of play it. It's just a scene about their relationship. You loved each other and you got married in the big church and you had a honeymoon in the south of France and you never had any trouble of any kind. So how can you possibly understand how it is with Fred and me? We never had any trouble. How many times have I told you I hated you and believed it in my heart? How many times have you said you were sick and tired of me, that we were all washed up? How many times have we had to fall in love all over again? I just love that scene. It, again, it's these complex ideas in a movie in the, in you know, 1946 that I just am blown away by. Yeah, and I mean, Myrna Lori just being such oh. a top fleet, beautiful, intelligent actress. You know, she's just like... To me, one of the greats of that decade. Yes. And to your point, the women here aren't villains. Like, they are at odds with the men that are coming home, right? They each have a, a hurdle to kind of traverse, and some for the better and some for the worse. But you see all their sides. Like, I don't feel like Frank's wife, you know, who he met kind of just briefly before, you know, before the war and they got married, like, that they have, they're separate people. They're not the people that they were, and they... They seemingly aren't perfect together, you know. It, it's I love that, but she's not a villain. Yeah, there's a genuine love and affection between everybody. Mm-hmm. It's just that circumstances have changed. That this big thing is common. It took their men away for a couple of years, and now they're back. And what happens? And you know, I mean, in a way, I'm like Myrna Loy is a really big star to have this small part in an ensemble film, like Meryl Streep and Deer Hunter. Like Meryl Streep and Deer Hunter, except you know she's. Myrna Loy is like after a huge peak in her career, although she had taken a couple of years off because she was very invested in, you know, touring with the USO, with helping bring entertainment to soldiers at hospitals here. She was engaged to a man who was in the army. So I she mean, hadn't acted in a few years. And then they offer her this part. And she was like, you know what? I know that this is small, but I think I think this film is important. And if you give me top billing, I'll do it. Wow. Well, but I feel like this is a project that you want to be a part of. It's it sort of, you know, to me, you can make the analogy of Tom Cruise and Magnolia. You know, here's an actor at that point, one of the biggest actors of all time, taking a, a, a small part in a, in a film. And yes, it's a very big ensemble film. But, uh, you know, it's I think sometimes it's just to be associated with a great director and a great script and, and be in it. You know, there's yeah. nothing else that she could play. And she did a great job there. Although, you know who said no? Who? Our buddy Fred McMurray. Really? Yeah, because when they saw Double Indemnity, I mean, this film seems to have a lot of noir elements, oh, right? Like yeah. the narration, the moodiness, the complicated feelings and the emotions. Well, and especially so- that part where Fred at the end is in the in the airplane cockpit and you are, you know, seeing him through, you know, the bullet pierced glass and it it's very uh evocative. Yeah, I mean, him being the character who seems like to really have PTSD before where they were going to put a word to it. You know, with his nightmares and things. Anyway, they offer Fred, because of Double Indemnity, film that we already saw mm-hmm. on the list, they offered him the part of Al, and he said no because it was too small. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it's it's a long film. It's almost three hours. And it's really equally weighted, and it takes its time getting from place to place. And I, I really appreciated it. I feel like there are just moments that breathe here. 
And in other films, we talked about this a lot in Deer Hunter. Oh my God, that wedding scene goes on forever. But I feel here when scenes have silence, it is really, you know, for the dramatic push of the of the scene. Like it, it doesn't feel like, okay, you can speed this up or move this on. Cause you actually traverse a lot of time, a lot of characters, a lot of story, but the movie still has this. Um, and we just talked about Forrest Gump. It's moving. There's music. There's this, blah, 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 blah. But here it really can exist in these moments. It's an epic. It's an epic without any of the tropes of an epic. Yeah. I mean, what Greg Tolan and William Mueller put together here, it reminded me a lot of Philadelphia story. Oh, Remember how we were yes. talking about in Philadelphia story, they would find a good place for the camera and then they would just let the action take place. Yeah. And they would watch everything almost like it was a play. And they do that a lot here. And they're able to do it really well because of Greg Tolan using super deep focus cinematography yeah. where you can see what somebody in the very back of the room is doing as the camera's up in the front. You know, one of the most famous examples being when Harold is playing chopsticks. Mm. And it was like, look at me, I'm playing chopstick, blah, blah, blah. But the camera is aware that over his shoulder, you have this moment between Fred and Al where Al has just told Fred he has to call and break up with his daughter. And so we have this kind of trajectory with our eyes where we can see this tense moment happening in the background, even as the camera is centering on the piano. And sometimes to ill effect, because that is such a beautiful shot composition. But... I noticed a handful of times that there's a background performer that will start to take your attention away from the front of the scene. And I noticed it in that scene where Al's giving the bank loan to the vet. There is a background performer uh, just kind of watching the interaction or I, I don't know exactly how he's placed. I'm like, oh, is he going to rat him out to the bank? I, I thought like, uh-oh, get ready for this guy because he is ominously standing in the back like lording over the scene and then the vet walks out and that guy just kind of goes back to doing his background acting. I'm like, oh, I just, but my eyes just went, like it's, I was like, ah, I'm ahead of it. I see where it's going. I see this. I see him getting busted. Nope. Uh, well, let's listen to like five seconds of chopsticks just because I feel like, you know what? It is a nice nod to also our buddy Tom Hanks from last week. Are you all set, kid? I'm ready when you are. Okay. One, two, three. So, you know, we've been talking about this piano player. It is interesting to note that the piano player is actually uh, Hoagie Carmichael, uh, who composed Lazy River. Now, I don't know much about Hoagie Carmichael. Do you, Amy? No, but I see that our beloved, beloved engineer, Devin, is like chomping at the microphone <laughs> to try to say something. Devin, who is really uh, responsible for a lot of the fun facts you don't hear him getting credit <laughs> for on this show. Uh, Devin, what do you know about Hoagie Carmichael? Yeah, well, he's very interesting. He uh, he was one of the most prolific of the Tin Pan Alley songwriters, and mm -hmm. so he wrote, like, Georgia on My Mind and Stardust and, okay. uh, you said Lazy River, Heart and Soul, he wrote that also. Oh, wow. So he wrote a tremendous amount of music for a wide variety of people. Uh, I also know him just on site because he was uh, Ian Fleming's kind of original model for what James Bond should look like in the novels. Wow. Yeah, I think he mentions that at some point, that he was supposed to have a Hoagie, Hoagie Carmichael-like uh, look, and that is part of the reason he was upset with uh, the casting of Sean Connery, because he said he looks nothing like Hoagie Carmichael. Wow, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and was Hoagie Carmichael an actor, or he just... He, he appeared in uh, a lot of movies. He was primarily a songwriter, and yeah. uh, I 
one of the more gifted jazz pianists too of the songwriter generation that he was a part of. But yeah, he did act in a couple movies. Wow, that's I mean, I love that little Easter egg. I I found that it's something that didn't resonate with me. I know the name Hoagy Carmichael, uh, but I did not understand necessarily where he kind of falls in that pantheon. Yeah, it's interesting to see him poke up in this movie. Do you think Hoagie taught Harold how to play chopsticks for that scene? Oh, interesting. Maybe. So a little fun fact there. But as we're talking about the music, I have to say if I had one dig on this film, it was the score. It's so melodramatic and soap opera-y and, you know, almost like soap dish style soap opera. You know, um, it's not as sweeping or as operatic even has gone with the wind it, it 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 it's sort of like filler and you know sometimes when uh i think about this all the time like library music because library music is essentially free like whatever studio you work for has like library music and you use library music because they've already bought the rights to it and you just kind of slap it in and that's what it felt like to me it didn't feel you like check this off is- the emotions you're like oh i want orchestral yes. epic melancholy and by the way when when you have been like me and I've edited now so many times and you're pulling library music, I find such a joy in hearing it on television. You see it on television all the time. Like, oh, 24, library music. Or this, library music, library. <laughs> like you just, you just start to, you know where it is because you've listened to those tracks. But there was something about this that felt uninspired. And in my research about the film, I found out that was the one thing that William Wyler hated about this film. He hated the score, uh, even though Hugo uh, Friedhofer won an Oscar for his work scoring the film. Uh, but it it does seem uh, against what they're doing. I mean, we're talking about this idea of like realism and there's something too soapy about it. The movie doesn't need that kind of music you know i don't know that's i don't know if it stuck out to you Yeah, it's almost like it's so real that you're able to pull the music back you don't need it to telegraph anything to you i mean where the music really threw me off was actually a scene you were referring to a minute ago when they land from the plane and they're taking a quick tour through their town and the music in that scene is so excited yeah i know it's like we're gonna take a tour of a jelly bean factory i know can we just listen to it One of my favorite things from that montage uh, with that jaunty song is that they look at a hot dog stand and, you know, people are going by the hot dog stand. But there's a great, like, slogan, settle for a hot dog, question mark. (laughs) You know, and it's like, I just love that hot dogs are like, we know you didn't want it, but would you settle for it? Like, it's just like, I just love the insecurity of the hot dog uh, place. And it's the best way to describe when you yearn for a hot dog. You're settling for a hot dog. Um, (laughs) Unless it's from Shake Shack. Then they're delicious. Chicago dog. I'll eat it all day long. Mm, I don't get that celery salt. But if we're going to (laughs) be taking tiny pot shots at this film before we go back to rhapsizing about it, this is one film where there was one moment where I was like, what is up with the sound engineering? Mm. And I don't know if this threw you off at all, but there's a scene where um, the actress Teresa Wright, who plays Peggy, the daughter mm. who is in love with Fred. Who I think is great. Yeah, she's great. And just as, by the way, as a tiny aside from Teresa, because I just want to make sure I get to say this in, she had this crazy hot streak when she comes out. Basically, Teresa Wright arrives in Hollywood, does three movies, gets three Oscar nominations for Whoa. her first three movies. She's considered like this educated starlet, like a real, sincere, serious actress to the point that when she was negotiating her own contract with Samuel Goldwyn, this is her contract that she did when she did Little Foxes, which is one of her Oscar films. She wrote, Ahem. The aforementioned Teresa Wright shall not be required to pose for photographs in a bathing suit unless she is in the water. Neither may she be photographed running on the beach with her hair flying in the wind. Nor may she pose in any of the following situations. Quote, 
In short, playing with a cocker spaniel, digging in a garden, whipping up a meal, attired in firecrackers and holding skyrockets for the 4th of July, <laughs> looking insinuatingly at a turkey for Thanksgiving, wearing a bunny cap what? with long ears for Easter, twinkling on prop snow in a skiing outfit while a fan blows her scarf, assuming an athletic stance while pretending to hit something with a bow and arrow. Wow, so she was like, like somebody who had done a lot of photo <laughs> shoots. <laughs> she was like, you will take me seriously. And then eventually Samuel Golden fires her for being difficult. And then she never really gets her mojo back, except uh, that she got an Emmy nomination for being on TV for The Miracle Worker. Interesting. And you know, her last film was The Rainmaker, a film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who we've talked about it a lot. And I wanted to bring this up. Uh, it's a long way around, but this is one of Francis Ford Coppola's favorite films. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And it feels in in the right sense. Like he, he makes these big character pieces, these big kind of epics. And I, and I I thought it was interesting that this film was an influence for him. Uh, but anyways, back to the scene with Teresa Wright. Yes. So she's having this conversation with her mother, Myrna Loy, about how much she loves Fred and how they can't really work out. Yes. And she's shelling peas. And all I could think about in the scene was like, what on earth is up with the sound mix on these peas? But what happened? But it was just one of those things. Said it wouldn't be fair to his wife for us to see each other anymore because I'm obviously the kind of girl that takes these things too seriously. Then he said goodbye very politely and hung up. I'm sorry, am I crazy? Uh, that was like, what is wrong with this piece? Those peas are very heavy. It's back in the 40s. The peas were made of a dis- different consistency. You know, but Amy, I think the reason why those peas sounded so good is because this is the first movie recorded in stereo. Did you know that? Uh, using the Westerx recording system. It's a stereophonic version. Uh, only exists um, on the original masters of this film. They were never formally married to the picture. So only a small number of theaters could actually have multi-channel sound when this actually uh, premiered. But it's interesting. How this many is people like, went deaf when she was shelling peas? <laughs> you could hear the peas. I thought they used to, like, THX used to be like, Tink, 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 peas. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite character? Who do you identify with the most? Oh, gosh. Um, I guess you're supposed to kind of follow Fred as our main character. I mean, he's the one that definitely gets the most screen time. Yeah, yeah. And he is the one that I think has an experience that feels most relatable to me as a person who remembers trying to find a job mm-hmm. when I was, like, young and figuring out what you should be doing with your work and having – what I found so fascinating about his character is he's a guy who has all this ego when he comes home because he's been one of the heroes of the war. He's been a bombardier. And I feel like if you were a person seeing this movie in 1946, you would have a special kind of vision lens that I wouldn't have, which is you'd be able to look at his uniform and read all his medals. Right. Which I feel like I can't – I mean, I can't do it all, and I really wish I could. But you'd be able to read his jacket and see everything cool that he had done – and yet he can't get a job anywhere. Like he, you know, he goes on this one job interview back where he used to work, and it's just a complete letdown. I can see that you had a splendid war record, Derry. Just average, Mr. Thor. But you'll understand that since this business changed hands, we're under no legal obligation to give you your old job back. So I wasn't thinking of getting my old job back, Mr. Thorpe. I'm looking for better ones. What are your qualifications, your experience? Two years behind a soda fountain and three years behind a Norden bombsite. Yeah. But while in the army, did you have any experience in procurement? No. Purchasing of supplies, materials? No, I didn't do any of that. I just dropped bombs. Did you do any personnel work? No. But as an officer, you surely had to act in an executive capacity. You had to command men. You were responsible for the morale. 
No, I was only responsible for getting the bombs on the target. I didn't command anybody. I see. I'm sure that work required great skill. But unfortunately, we've no opportunities for that with midway drugs. Yeah. You see, this is where I kind of disagree with you. I don't think he has much of an ego. I think he does everything to hide the fact that he's a war hero. He, you know, not until the end of the film when his parents who live literally under the bridge uh, in almost like a shantytown, uh, you know, find his records. Like, you know, the we see his other men, you know, the men he's coming back with, kind of treat him with respect. But he is the lowest status character throughout the entire thing. And, and for lack of a better term, and I apologize for not being uh, more uh, verbose here, but he's like eating shit the entire film. I mean, he literally every part of his life. And he never pulls out like, but I was a war hero, but I did this, but look at me. Like he kind of represents, I think that quiet stoicism. Like he doesn't have a problem. He doesn't have an outward problem. He's, you know, his outward problem is I just need to make ends meet, but he's still cooking. He's, he's just making do, but he's not happy. That's fair. Maybe ego was the wrong word, but you see it in the film when the way like he walks through the soda fountain with his uniform on, all the girls just look at him and mm-hmm. he appreciates that they're looking at him. Sure. How much his wife wishes he'd wear the uniform when they went out. How there's a But yet yeah, he won't wear it when he goes out because That's he doesn't true. want that attention. But there's like a quiet confidence in the, in him in the scene where he's like, I deserve a better job. Which mm-hmm. is fair. Absolutely fair. Absolutely earned. And he doesn't quite get yet that this world isn't just going to open up the doors for him. But he also won't forcibly open those doors. I think that that's the thing. Like he is kind of maybe carrying himself in the world in which people would look at his, you know, his body and see on his, you know, what medals he has and what stripes he has to say, oh no, you demand respect. He has to kind of traverse into a world where he has to physically say that he can't or have to show that. And it's so sad to me because he is the most adjusted and yet he can't get it to work and click. And when you see him going through all that problem and all that trouble, like you're like, Oh, it, that helps bring it home more. And, and the, the last time I kind of felt like that in a major way was uh hurt locker. Actually, there's a great, I just love uh, certain parts of that movie. I haven't watched it many times, but um, I saw it twice and Jeremy Renner went with that, his whole thing of coming home and, and being there and and what happens after. I mean, I always remember like him going into a Target and, and seeing all... All the cereal. Yeah. Which is, I was thinking about that actually in the same scene because through that deep focus, what you see over his shoulder as he's having this awkward job interview is all of these signs for like toothpaste. Yeah, everything you know, has changed. Through the, the, the simple, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's so much commercialism, so much overwhelming visual things. And, and he's it, it forced like to work the there. Thing. Yeah, it felt like a lot of the Hurt Locker. I was like, oh, I bet the Hurt Locker took... This note. They had played it in a different way here. I mean, by the way, one of the funniest scenes in the entire film is the big uh, or the big box of perfume with the very small (laughs) bottle of perfume in it. It was like a great, like a very funny visual gag. Yeah, I read that William Wyler had to hold up the set to make sure the box was the right box for this visual gag. He's like, it's going to be worth it. It it is really it 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 works to this day. But you do sense that that Fred has had these kind of sour spots in his life before. I think my favorite one is when he wakes up. After being hungover, mm-hmm. he's in Peggy's bed, but he doesn't really know he's in Peggy's bed yet because he doesn't really remember meeting Peggy. And the first thing he does is he looks around. He's like, I'm in a girl's bedroom. And then he finds his wallet and he looks to see if any cash has been stolen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is this silent little bit. And you're like, oh, man, what did you go through in the war? Kind of also like when Al gets really drunk and he's dancing with his wife. And he's like, you remind me of my wife. And I'm like, oh, man, yeah. where does that go? Because if 
he seems very comfortable with this moment of you reminding me of my Well, wife. I mean, but it's also like the way that Fred's, you know, wife says to him, like, well, what were you doing in Paris and London? Like, you know, let's not let's not go there. Like, we did our things and, you know, and uh, I got to go in, on a USO tour to Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war. Like, Whoa, really? Uh, yeah. Did at, you wear a tiny little swimsuit? Was it like Apocalypse Now? I did. I did wear a tiny They helicoptered me in. I danced in bikini. They revolted. <laughs> and uh, I'm not dropping that to say anything more than being there in the middle of, you know, men and women who are fighting in a very active and apparently uh, a, 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 the worst part of the war. I think you think of soldiers so much as, you know, these fearless uh, men and women who can brave anything and they'll overcome everything. And and we have now, in our films now, really opened that up and, and shown them for being people. And I think we still probably have a hard time getting through that and seeing seeing soldiers as somebody who just, you know, did this amazing act to serve for their country that they believe in. And I think that this movie does this thing. It grounds them as these real people. They're, nobody here is more than a normal person. They, like, yes, they happen to go to war, but they're here. And this is this is how they live their lives. I mean, the war affects them, but I feel like they do a great job of of grounding them back into this world. I don't know if that was a tangent worth going on, but it's it, like, I just, I, I couldn't, I just kind of really connected to that. And especially with this character of Fred, it's like, wh- wh- why would he get a better job? There's no reason. Like he, if he was a soda jerk, he was a soda jerk. And, and there's no reason for him to get a better job because he was successful in war, it, uh, he doesn't, you know, he's now working for his assistant. Yeah, and there's, I think, something kind of cynical in that if this movie is saying this is how America treats its heroes. Yeah. That's why I think it's so striking that this movie, like you were saying, comes out in 1946. I mean, the war has just ended. And yet, when you look at the statistics of the unemployed, half of them were veterans. Veterans were here being returned to a hero's welcome. They weren't getting celebrated. And this is another moment, kind of like Forrest Gump last year, where all of a sudden, Congress and the country really swerves hard to the right. Right. In part because of, you know, anti-communism efforts and in part because of, like, what are we standing for right now? Yeah. You know, we don't have a unifying thing that we're behind. Have we lost our way as a country? Like, what are we doing with our soldiers? Well, that's why I love that moment where they have this whole battle, not battle, but this confrontation with this guy. He's like, ah, you fought for liars. And this is, and I was like, oh, my God, this feels so... Like that was going on then. I guess I, I my mind. Yeah, you know, because I mean, HUAC is really getting underway, and and let's listen to that actually. You got plenty of guts. It's terrible when you see a guy like you that had to sacrifice himself, and for what? And for what? I don't get you, Mister. Well, Anything else for you? Check. We let ourselves get sold down the river. We were pushed into war. Sure, by the Japs and the Nazis, so we had... Oh, the Germans and the Japs had nothing against us. They just wanted to fight the Limeys and the Reds. And they would have whipped them, too. We didn't get deceived into it by a bunch of radicals in Washington. What are you talking about? We fought the wrong people, that's all. Just read the facts, my friend. Find out for yourself why you had to lose your hands. And then go out and do something about it. You're going to pay your check, brother, and go home. Well, who do you think you are? Pay the cashier right over there. Coffee, please. Yes, And there's another thing. Every soda jerk in this country's got an idea he's somebody. You know, they actually cut something out of that speech. That man, in his angry speech, in the script, he adds the phrase, and this is um, this is me quoting from the script, he, uh, he insults the Jew lovers, is what he says, mm-hmm. that he feels like are driving the country astray. 
And HUAC made them cut that out. And it's sort of... That would make the scene extra brutal. But then again, it seems like facing the kind of language we see today, honestly, online. Well, yeah, I mean, you're seeing a lot. I mean, you're seeing a lot of... I mean, there's a lot of language in this movie, you know, and the way they reference, you know... The Japanese people. The Japanese people, yeah. It's like you're... And it's of the time, and and that's... and So there is a realism in that. uh, But I feel like this is... You know, it would have been interesting to see that. It would have been really fascinating. It would have been really brutal, and it would have been accurate to that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. yeah, it, it, I, I don't think that the Hayes Code cut it as much because of the insult as it did in aligning anti-communism belief with people who are hateful. Yeah. I, I can't – I don't know what their their spirit and conscience was, but I'm more inclined to believe the more cynical take. I, I, I'll buy that. Well, you know, I mean, William Wyler, you know, also kind of – Cruise up this entire film. Everybody in production roles from props and grips and editors are all vets, you know, and even the person that he has write the film, uh, Robert E. Sherwood, uh, wrote it because he'd been the head of war information during World War II. So these are people that are so entrenched. Every detail is is coming through the eyes of someone who had been there or have friends in there and can speak to it. And that's something that we talk a lot about this in our on our talking about war films. Like, well, where is the veracity? Like, what is this somebody who wants to go to war, who didn't go to war? Is this somebody's idea of what war is? And this is people who were living it on both sides. We have an actor who was in it. We have a film production crew that was in it. You know, we have a person writing it who was in it. We have a director. Like, this is a Yeah, pr- William Wyler lost his hearing in one ear during the war. I mean, William Wyler said that that reunion scene that you have here between Al and um, his wife is mimicked off of a scene that he had himself when he came home from the war and he got to see his wife at, I think, the Four Seasons Hotel or a really fancy hotel is where he finally got to reconnect with his wife. And it, it felt just like that. Which, by the way, I love that scene because it shows one of the things that I think Greg Tolan does so well here is he creates these kind of parallel bars that focus your interest. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of scenes here where you have almost like – remember that scene in Network where you have the lines, the lights on the desk kind of pointing all the way back to the yes. other speech? He, he does that here with like conference room tables full of men. He does it here with hallways that always seem to be like guiding your eye. Also to talk about 1946 and the idea of seeing a film that was this much about your life – I mean, 1946 was this record year in terms of marriages. You know, everybody's coming home and they're getting married married, and the baby boom is starting, you know, okay, boomer. And then it's also this record year for alcoholism. Alcohol sales go insane wow. and a record year for divorces. So it's not just marriages. It's divorces. It's people going through what these characters are going through. They come home and all of a sudden their life doesn't fit them anymore. Yeah. And it really blew me away to have characters like Al's son, for example, who's talking to his dad about this war, they have just won and seems to be taking more of a pacifist stance. Here's a samurai sword, Rob. Thanks very much, Dad. Uh, Here's a flag I I found on a dead Jap soldier. All that writing on it are signatures and good luck messages from his relatives. Yes, I know. The Japanese attach a lot of importance to the family relationship. Yeah. Yeah, entirely different from us. Say, you were at Hiroshima, weren't you, Dad? Uh Well, did you happen to notice uh, any of the effects of radioactivity on the people who survived the blast? Oh, I didn't. Should I have? Well, we've been having lectures in atomic energy at school, and Mr. McLaglin, he's our physics teacher, he says that we've reached the point where the whole human race has either got to find a way to live together, or else, um, 
Or else. <laughs> That's right, or else. And then the son dies and is never seen again. <laughs> he doesn't die. Where does he, he go? He's got stuff to do. I think the I think Myrna Lois at one point says he's off doing something. That's very convenient. I mean, he doesn't. I mean, ultimately, he doesn't have to play a role in it. I mean, there's nothing like you don't need to see the sun. Like you, like it, there's nothing story wise that makes sense. He's got his sword. He's ready to go. He drops some bombs, some nuggets. Um, but I actually thought that was interesting that that they are questioning the war throughout. And there, you know, it's it's a messy movie. It's a truthful movie. I think it has a happy ending because each one of these characters finds a peace and whether or not it's the way they wanted their life to be is no i think ultimately all of them it's not exactly how they pictured it except for homer i think homer gets what he wanted his life to be but thought it could never be and fred and al are in a different position you know i I think that al is is kind of sold his soul a little bit by you know, having to say yes and no to people that are coming home from the war. I mean, the hardest position for him ever. And Yeah, he and, has to say no to a guy. Well, he said he's supposed to say no, but he winds up saying yes to a guy who's very Tom Jodish. He's like, yeah. I'm, I'm a sharecropper. My dad was a sharecropper. I know how to work this land. Just let me have some money so I can have some land back. Yeah, get those and tomatoes. And he gets yelled at for that. Like, he gets really yelled at. And then he winds up. You know, what what the first draft of the script is supposed to be was that Al quits the bank. He makes this big stance and he's like, I'm out of here. Forget this bank. Banks are the devil. And they realize that, you know what? That's a privileged position, honestly, to be like, yeah. I'm rich. I don't need this job. And that really the way that soldiers were stuck was that they couldn't afford to quit the jobs that they didn't like. And so they had to figure out how to keep Al in his job. And the way they did it is he winds up trying to kind of work his way around into giving a speech that is perilous for two reasons. One, because he's drunk and Mirna Lohr keeps looking at him like he's going to really fuck this yeah. up. And two, he puts his boss's ass on the line and he gives a speech about what banks should be doing. And how it should be supporting the troops in America. Uh, now, in conclusion, I'd like to tell you a humorous anecdote. I know several humorous anecdotes, but I can't think of any way to clean them up. So I'll only say this much. I love the Corn Belt Loan and Trust Company. There are some who say that the old bank is suffering from hardening of the arteries and of the heart. I refuse to listen to such radical talk. I say that our bank is alive. It's, it's generous. It's, it's human. And we're going to have such a line of customers seeking and getting small loans that people will think we're gambling with the depositor's money. And we will be. We'll be gambling on the future of this country. I mean, how clever is it that he aligns people who don't want to share money with the radicals? He calls that the radicals. Well, and I think what this movie is doing is normalizing a lot of concepts. You know, this movie is a huge, huge success. And they're showing it, it is the best piece of propaganda to support the acceptance of soldiers. It's not war propaganda, it's soldier propaganda. It's like, no, these are functioning. You can hire someone with a disability. They're amazing. You should you should uh you should be asking questions. You should be supporting your troops. It's like it's a but it's all done in entertaining, not hitting you over the head way that feels motivated that you're on the side of these characters. And we talk about this a lot, like the power of film to kind of convey these really big ideas 
that you leave and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm, I'm, hey, you're right. I need to gamble on America. And then all of a sudden you're doing it, you know, whether or not it works, you know, we'll see. But I think that to have a movie this popular, you have to imagine it, it has some effect on the culture. Or even to say it's okay to get a divorce, right? I mean, I know, yeah. you know, I just think, but to see like, yeah, it doesn't work out. It's okay. And you'll find your other love somewhere else. The Hayes Code was very nervous about that, about the fact that Fred was going to leave his wife. They really were like, do we have to have it play out this way? Is there any way humanly possible? And I love that they fought for just two characters and their their ability to get divorced. Well, can I ask you a question? Uh, because obviously there's only certain things you can do in these films. Do you think Fred and Peggy had sex? Like, like the way I, I know that there's only certain things that you can do in these films. But there's something to me that goes, I feel like they did. What? When? Sometime. I don't know. But I mean, they can't put it in the movie. So it's not like, they're not alluding to it. But I feel like their connection, we talk about this all the time. Their connection is like, they have one night, he doesn't remember meeting her. And he's like, I love you. And then like, let's go. And they have lunch, one lunch. And he's kissing her, like hard kiss. And then it's like, and then it's like, I need to leave my wife for you. It's like, I don't get it because we're watching in real time (laughs) this go on. Like I can see him being infatuated with her. But the way that... Like, I feel like there is, like, a little edit or something like that. I feel like they had that so? lunch yeah. and had sex. Like, in, in in the world in which you could make this movie, Where, they did under that. the table? No, I'm just saying in the world in which you could add an extra scene and do it. You wow. know what I'm saying? I mean, what I was thinking of that Or maybe that night, was, that drunken night. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you remember when we were talking about The Godfather, about how The Godfather corrected all the bad Italian stereotypes? Yeah. What I was laughing about at the lunch scene was just like, oh, there's one of those bad Italian stereotypes. The apple of pie, she's a homemade. Good. Thank you. Apple of pie, <laughs> one of the best Italian pieces of food. Hey, have an apple of pie. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I just think it's radical enough that Peggy, good girl Peggy, sweet Peggy, lovely, proper Peggy, mm-hmm. gently puts him to bed when he's drunk, takes care of people, is very stable, is very funny. Has yeah, a great she's sense great, of yes. Humor, that lovely Peggy, our heroine, Gets to have a scene where she's like, I'm going to break up that marriage, mom and dad. I I'm going to it. make them get a divorce. That is one of the boldest things I've seen. I love like that character. I mean, I love her character. And I and I love his wife, too. I love just the way that she is, the cocktail waitress who just wants to go out and party. And Because, by the way, she's definitely boning that dude. I mean, like, he's on the, you know, like, that's what I kind of felt like. There was some, like, a little bit of curved corners. Not cut corners curved corners in the sense that like you know he comes home and catches this other man in his house it's just a friend no like this is what we're we're, let's you know let's draw a a line here you know true but i I mean i like the detail of her just taking off her eyelashes i mean that's a moment you don't see i love that by the way that actress virginia mayo she became one of the biggest box office stars in the late 40s you know she was just Mm -hmm. sort of known as being this beautiful hilarious comedian people didn't take her that seriously as an actress and so she said that one of the silver linings of this movie is that it won while at the Oscar. She said, quote, because people say if he could do that with Virginia Mayo, wow, he could do anything. By the way, also, the Sultan of Morocco said that Virginia Mayo's beauty is, quote, unquote, tangible proof of the existence of God. <laughs> All right. We have a very radical guest who is joining us now for this episode. Her name is Santina Muha. You know her as an actress. She's a producer. She's a podcaster. She's been on Comedy Bang Bang. She was in the new Gus Van Sant movie. Don't worry. He won't get far on foot with Joaquin Phoenix. And she has her own podcast, Rolling With My Homies. And she is also the 2009 Miss Wheelchair New Jersey, to which I want to say congratulations. And I love that you are competitive like that. 
thank you. <laughs> I'm not a really a, pa- a pageanty girl, so it's funny whenever that, that one gets brought up. But thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I thought what was interesting about the best years of our lives was that we saw this character of Homer um, being portrayed in an incredibly, or at least to me, realistic way. It was a part of his life, his disability, but it was not the deciding factor of his life. Um, you know, what was your takeaway from his character? Yeah, I agree. I really liked the way they handled it. And I don't know why, where we went wrong. I don't know where we went from that movie to where we are now, where, you know, I feel like if that movie was made, maybe not today, but 10 years ago, that character for sure would have been the one that killed himself at the end. Right. Or, you know, or went to off to live on an island. You know, I, I, like in, in Lost, where John Locke realizes, well, if he lives on the island, he can walk. And so what if there's no food and a smoke monster? At least he can walk. <laughs> and then there's this thing, of course, called inspiration porn, where Hollywood wants to make everybody just cry. And they, they really have made uh, acquiring a disability just become the worst thing that can happen in a character's life. And I was in a car accident when I was six years old. And I have to tell you that, I mean, it was a bad thing that happened to me. It's probably in my top... 10, but it's not the worst. I mean, my grandmother died. That was really hard for me. You know, I've been broken up with. I mean, it's not the only sad thing that's ever happened to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, I think it's so interesting that you're right. There's this certain type of story that we want to see come out of a character who has a disability. And that we have to almost like, it seems like a Hollywood script. Like I was reading recently that I think 59 actors have gotten Oscar nominations for playing a character with a physical or a mental disability. And out of that 59, you know, that it seems like a character thing that they that gets rewarded because half of them won the Oscar themselves. Like 50% of, of the actors won an Academy Award for playing a person with a disability, but it's always in these kind of very earnest, sad dramas. And none of those people... Yeah, have- and how many of those actors had disabilities themselves? What, zero, maybe? Yeah, on that list. Actually, wait, I think one other person had a disability. It was the only only two people with uh, disabilities have ever won an Oscar. It was Harold Russell first for this. And then Marley Matlin, uh, when she did uh, Children of a Lesser God. And she was actually right. saying, I remember once in an interview, that Rex Reed said the morning after her Oscar win that she didn't really deserve it, that it was a pity vote. And because she was a person who was already deaf, playing a person who was deaf wasn't even acting, so it didn't count. Oh, my gosh. That is that is insane. Another thing I really loved about the character of Homer is that often when you see somebody with a disability portrayed in film, they're either just a total hero or a supervillain, like a Lieutenant Dan or, or um, Captain Hulk, right? Right. So what I liked about Homer is you really got to see the, the struggle throughout, right? He had his, his ups and his downs throughout the film. And I think that that's really important that when you when you portray a character with a disability, that they're they're not just because like me, I'm from Jersey. I'm sort of I could be a bitch, but I'm also, you know, a Sicilian, very maternal, loving, nice woman. So I'm but I'm both. I'm both. And that's okay. It's okay. It's not like, oh, when I'm a bitch, it's because I'm bitter because I'm in a wheelchair. And when I'm nice, it's because. I have a disability and I'm so saccharine. No, it's nothing to do with that at all, ever. Do you find that like a lot of the times in media, when it's not dictated by someone who has a disability, that that's how they're viewed, that they're basically viewed as their disability, not as a full person? I mean, is that kind of like, it seems to me that that often is the case. It's sort of like, no, no, that's what they, they everything is a revolving around that. 
Yes, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to an audition and there's a 12-year-old girl there and a 70-year-old woman there and a 45-year-old guy there and we're all in wheelchairs and I'm like, what is this role? Just a wheelchair? What is happening? (laughs) You know, I just had to turn down a role yesterday for a lonely patient and I'm like, what what else? Why? What about it? A lonely patient? Like, as in you're just sitting around being lonely? Literally. You know, I was even saying, like, the what, the work that you're doing, like, like your, um, the music video that you did. Um, oh, ass level. Yeah, ass level. It's like, but, like, it seems to me when you're able to take it in your own hands, and unfortunately, it becomes that thing, like, it, then you get to actually create something that you want to create, and you're not having to... like fill in the blanks of what someone's writing because they're imagining you as a lonely patient or as a blank or, you know, like, like, you know, like you're actually able to flesh it out. Also something to think about is disability is unfortunately. And when you think it's a disability is a minority that anybody can join right at any time. So I think people, there's a fear associated with it. For me, I want to remove that, that stigma because like I said, I've lived a generally happy life. Sometimes it's hard. Of course it is. We all have our own issues, right? We all have issues. But I think society has just is really behind on how to deal with people who have disabilities. Oh, yeah. And to yeah. that point of like this being a group that anybody can join, you know, to, to give people who are listening some numbers, like a fifth of the American population has a disability, which makes the fact that I think what only like two out of every 100 roles in Hollywood are for disabled characters, that seems like such a huge gulf in the stories we're not just telling, or the characters are just not having there, be there. Yeah, and representation really matters. I remember when I was a little girl watching my favorite show of all time, Beverly Hills 90210, and there was a, in the opening, just, you know, in sort of the, where the credits are rolling, they were showing B-roll of the college when the, in the college years, and there was a girl in a wheelchair who just rolled by and I went, oh, my God, I could go to college just from that. Wow. You know, it's it's like it's important to show people with disabilities doing normal, regular things, because I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire a million years ago. And just to show you how long ago it was, I was getting a lot of MySpace messages after it <laughs> of people who had, <laughs> who had seen it and were just so excited to see somebody with a disability on a game show even seeing a show like speechless on tv you know it's like Mm -hmm. like if it becomes normalized it doesn't become a thing but anyway i think we've we're as a culture hopefully trying to expand that and and you know just saying like it's also like again going to speechless like there have that's somebody with cerebral palsy it's like it doesn't just one fit all it's not like okay good we got one person here so that's okay it's like we just need to continue to expand our minds and, and and open up to as many people as we can yeah, that's why with uh, rolling with my homies, I always make sure to interview a person who also lives their life in a wheelchair, you know, as a wheelchair user, because I think it's important to show people we have, there are so many differences between me and, you know, I have friends who, in wheelchairs, who when they see two steps, they'll just pop a wheelie and bounce down the two steps. And I think that's crazy. <laughs> I have to look for the ramp. I mean, that's great. So, I mean, like, it, it, I, I always think about the sort of, for lack of a better term, homosexuality boom in the 90s of, of Ellen and Queer Eye and Will and Grace. You know, and that was, to me, important because, like, Will and Grace, for example, you have Jack and you have Will. 
So that's important to see two sort of different takes on one thing, you know. You know, like Ellen, I, I really admire Ellen. I, I love what Ellen did because it got it gave people a chance to sort of say to their mothers or say to their, you know, their aunts, hey, listen, you know, if they were coming out of the closet and this was a, a, a scary time for them. Listen, Aunt Janet, you watch Ellen and you love Ellen and she's funny and she's successful. You know, it's like, who do we have to point to? And we're getting there. But I'll never forget when Christopher Reeve was injured, everybody thought, that that should be sort of my my role model. And it's like, well, I, I respect him, but I'm a, whatever I was, 15-year-old girl. I'm not going to have posters on my wall of this man in his 40s. What does that have to do with me? Wait, people you know, wanted like, to give you Christopher Reeve posters when you were a kid? He's not even that yeah, cute yeah. when you're 15. Uh, I love Superman, but yeah, you're a yeah, Luke Perry girl. So I was a Luke Perry girl, and I still am. That's right. <laughs> and and by the way, speaking of of that, if you if you break down the statistics even further of representation of people with disabilities on television, you'll find that it's like largely male. So that's the other problem is trying to break through. Not only am I, you know, have a disability, but then also I have to be a, a woman on top of it. Come on, throw me a bone. I mean, you you've touched on being in the '90s, and you touched a bit on Lieutenant Dan. Like, what was it like for you when Forrest Gump came out? As well, I liked that movie, but I had zero attachment to. In my mind, I didn't connect to those characters. Were other people connecting me to Lieutenant Dan? Probably, I guess. The only thing that I really, the, the thing I really point to with the, when it comes to Lieutenant Dan is because I remember how excited everybody was about the sort of CGI of it all and how they made it so realistic. And I agree, that was cool. And so whenever people say to me, well, you can't, you know, because when you have a character who is in a wheelchair for a large part of the film or the movie, but they can walk in the beginning, people say, you know, well, we needed to cast someone who didn't have a disability because in season three, we had a dream sequence where they could walk or whatever. And it's like, well, Okay, I call it the reverse Lieutenant Dan. We, right. Why not? Basically, Brad Pitt didn't need to become an old man or a baby for Benjamin Button. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it, 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 you're right. It's like a weird reverse discrimination. And I think the truth is, is like yeah. sometimes people don't want to do that work because it is, it's harder to, to find those people where, you know, where you can find, like, you know, for them, they, you have to reach out, you have to explore a community. And I feel like that's something that we're finding people don't often want to do, get out of their comfort zone. And that's, and I imagine, yeah. you know, part of what you have to do, unfortunately, besides being an actress and a writer and a performer, uh, is expand people's minds. And that's unfair because not many people have to do that as well. Like you have to show people, hey, look, yes, this, but also that. And, uh, and it's yeah. something that not many other people have, to, you know, have to do. Thank you, Paul. Yes, it's true. It is exhausting. I mean, I do want to educate because it's important, right? Because people don't know. But I also don't want anyone to ever feel like I'm trying to teach them anything. Right. People aren't interested in that either. So it is a fine line. But I've taken years of, of just training and, and a trial and error. And I've found ways now to teach people sort of by accident. Um, you know, or trick them into learning something. <laughs> like, I think if you watch something like Ask Level, you will probably come away from that thinking maybe a little differently about certain things, but it's definitely not a TED Talk, you know? Right. 
Well, this has been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for spending some time. And, and, uh, and I feel like it was just great to, to hear your take on this. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this. We're moving the needle. I see improvements. But, I mean, listen, if we talk about the, boom, the 90s boom of homosexuality, I was just watching a movie the other day where the couple was same sex and it wasn't mentioned. And what is this, 20 years later? Yeah. I'm like, oh, God, if you have 20 years to go, I'm not getting any younger. You know? <laughs> I'd really like to become famous before I'm just the grandmother. You know, give me yeah. my... Give me my mod before my Golden Girls, please. Well, thank you, Santina Muha. Uh, you could definitely check out her video, Ass Level, which is on YouTube. And it was also released on hoo uh, if you want to watch it there. But it's a great video directed by Allison Becker, who you also know probably from a lot of the things in the podcast scene. It was great having a conversation with her and uh, and continuing to have this conversation. Um, so let's get back into the best years of our lives. Amy, this movie is the first film to win Best Picture at the Oscars, BAFTA, and Golden Globes, uh, which is interesting. So it really made the round robin. Um, I can't imagine there are people that don't like this film. I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, well, you know, I imagine. Yeah, there were no critics that didn't like this film. There were reviews that were basically raves, like one from Annie Farber that liked everything about it, but felt like he had to put in at least one sentence that said, while the movie bites off more than it can chew and it never has sufficient nerve to hit hard-headed business or toadying clerks as well as it would like to, it is a far and away the least sentimental, most human of current films. So he really loved it. However, there are people who loathed and hated this movie. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, paramount among them, the FBI sent Hoover a report on films they considered pro-communist, and this was very far up there. And of course. And it quoted a lot from two people. One, it quoted from this um, very conservative film reviewer in a, in a magazine called Plain Talk. Okay. He wrote that, quote, we will have a communist government tomorrow if the propaganda investors of our lives fools enough people. And he called the movie vicious and dangerous. Wow. And a person very near and dear to my own heart, um, not as a hero, but just as a fascinating figure, sure. Ayn Rand. Really? Yeah. So Ayn Rand in her journals, she has an entire chapter on best years of our lives and everything she finds wrong with it. I distilled it down to four points. And by the way, I should say that a lot of what she wrote wound up quoted in the FBI report. Okay. Uh, so she said that many passages of this picture preach patriotism and sympathy for veterans, which helps the unwary to accept under the guise of patriotism the attacks on the free enterprise system, which she categorizes in four ways. One, she says that the scene where the rich man takes Fred's airplane seat is, quote, an act of cynical, sickening dishonesty. Okay. She says that, two, the drugstore scenes where uh, Fred is struggling with his job, where he doesn't get a lot of respect um, – she says, what impression will this give nerve-wracked young soldiers if not that they will have no chance in civilian life as long as jobs depend on private businesses and private employers? As in, she's worried that it's an argument for communism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She calls the bank loan scene, quote, the all-time low and irresponsible demagoguery because it arouses the worst instincts, the desire to loot in some helpless illiterates who might get the idea that the banks are holding out on them. Wow. And then the drugstore fight scene, you know, which is already yeah. trimmed down from what the script wanted to say, she says the movie implies that anyone who is anti-Soviet is pro-Nazi. She finds wow. it very offensive. And then finally, she ends her several pages long slam by quoting a Soviet newspaper called Culture and Life, 
which she says denounces most American movies as capitalist propaganda that gives a distorted, sweetened picture of life in the United States, except that this Soviet newspaper likes one film, The Best Years of Our Lives. Look, I mean, this is a movie that is kind of bucking trends to a certain degree, but I, I love how uh, how afraid people were of what this movie was saying. Yeah, and that this movie being so likable and Ayn Rand took as what made it dangerous. But where does, I mean, are you shocked by this, her opinion on this? Oh, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, yeah. Ayn Rand very, 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 very much hated communism. And when you learn her life story, you can see your point. It cost her everything. Right. Like she had a terrible childhood in St. Petersburg, uh, but she never really processed that in a way that made her able to, you know, like films. Well, no, Amy, I know this movie is so popular. Uh, so I imagine there's multiple Simpsons clips. Which one did you pick? Uh, well, the good <laughs> and bad here is that there is no direct Simpsons clip. <laughs> of course there isn't. <laughs> of course you didn't even you didn't even bite at that. You're like you're all right. Well, here yeah. we go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what we do have though, I cobbled it to I cobbled together two things. Um, the first one, I feel like Abe Simpson, a World War II veteran himself, he had an old episode about himself called Raging Abe. And I think it touches on this idea of a group of guys from a town returning home after World War II. So let's listen to a little bit of him and his uh, local veteran friends. I got this in the Second World War II. Back then, I was known as Sergeant Simpson, and I commanded the Flying Hellfish, the fightingest squad in the fightingest company in the 3rd fightingest Battalion in the Army. We were all from Springfield. There was Police Chief Wiggum's father, Iggy Wiggum. Um, if anybody finds a grenade without a pen, that's mine. Our radio man, Sheldon Skinner. All right, very funny. Well, I didn't join the service to make friends. And watching our backs was Private Fifth Class Arnie Gumbo. Uh... Uh, and then the next one that I picked is, this is from an episode called Half Decent Proposal. Okay. Where Homer gets a job at an oil refinery. As he walks in, every single man on the plant has a hook for hands, except for one man who has a hook for a face. And you just have to use your imagination here, but you can hear the sound fix. One man has a, a hook. for a man who wants to die? Something indoorsy. Postal bathroom? I'll put you on rig 13 as soon as they burn off the corpses. <laughs> uh, what you heard there uh, was not the hand of a man uh, squeaking. It was the head of a man that was replaced by a hook. I'm doing the best I can here. I love that, that. By the way, I'm shocked, literally shocked that you found two clips that slightly relate to this film and none for other films. So uh, I, I really, I applaud you. I applaud your Simpsons research. Um, I take this show very seriously. I don't think that this is even really a conversation, but I think we have to ask it because that's what we do on the show. Does this belong on the list? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and it's at a pretty high spot on the list in the 30s. I'm fine with it there. I think that's good. I think that's a high enough spot that says, you know what? Don't sleep on this guy. You are obligated to watch this. Maybe if it was lower in the 80s, I can imagine people kind of glazing over yeah. it. Yeah. 30 says, no, 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 man. Take Just your time. Just as relevant as it was in the 40s. And I think what this movie does right, uh, or why it belongs on this list, besides the cinematography, besides the acting, besides the accolades, is just like Grapes of Wrath. It is commenting on something that is going on in society at the time. And I think there's something so valuable to that. The people who are living there, experiencing it, going through it. This is 
a little bit of uh, an insight that we're never going to get. Like Christopher Nolan, no matter how hard he tries, is only going to get a version of Dunkirk, you know, through a certain lens, you know. And and this, I, I like again, like Grapes of Wrath. Like they could go to the camps at the time of making Grapes of Wrath and be like, "This is right. This is wrong. This is too much. This is too little." I, I just I'm always blown away by that. I mean, the fact that they were in a a plain junkyard, uh, you know, here in California for that final scene, it's like. Not recreated. That's it. It's happening. I, I yeah, I, and that it can be such a beautiful and evocative moment on feeling like you're scrapped. And 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 to have a movie that you make in the moment that is forever, and that is impressive and and pretty awe inspiring. I agree. Now I think we should go and have one of Mrs. Milton's pink sweet and nauseating cocktails. What do you think? I am down for that. And while we do that, uh, let you get ready for next week's film, Annie Hall, uh, a Woody Allen classic. So in the spirit of Annie Hall, I think one of the most classic scenes is when Woody Allen is overhearing a conversation and he knows these two people are wrong and he brings in the person that they are talking about, Marshall McLuhan, to correct them, to basically say, you're wrong. <laughs> and it's a great it's a it's a great scene. And we want to throw that to you. Who is a person that you would like to bring into a conversation for once and for all to solve, you know, something that you believe that is 100% truth? Who would you call in if you could hit that button? Oh, I know. I'd like to ask Martin Scorsese about superhero movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> well, uh, give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Who would you want to bring into a conversation to shut down uh, someone else in your life or uh, just get a definitive answer to it because I think that's what we sometimes want we we exist in these things and we know passionately we that we're right but who would we bring in and uh, to me it would be God because I would need to make sure you know why are we here let's get an answer let's do it right now wow wow